This is Marshall Seedorf, co-founder of Wild Rivers Coffee, VP of Sales at Force of Nature Meat, conservationist, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Well, Marshall, I had a ton of fun looking up your, you know, just information about you. Went on your LinkedIn, which uh, I'm glad you gave us permission to do that so you couldn't get that little uh, notification. Oh, Kent Boucher looked at your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> have you, okay, have have you guys ever done that before? You like go to do like a, a face face book or uh instagram like uh just like hey check check who this person is and and see if it's somebody i should connect with but then you actually realize you're on linkedin you're like dang it they're getting a notification (laughs) that i looked at their profile you ever had that happen i I actually had that happen with a former employee i was just checking in on them and seeing you know what happened you know where they landed yeah, and they emailed totally. me and like, hey, I saw you were looking at my LinkedIn. I was like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can please yeah. have my job back? <laughs> oh man, dude, I, I have a uh, cousin who one time was uh, <laughs> checking this girl out on Facebook. Oh, and he fell asleep, like he was like scrolling before bed, and he accidentally added her as a friend, and uh, she knew. Um, uh my brother my brother's girlfriend now wife and she like came up to him she's like hey do you know uh so-and-so because uh he, he just added me as a friend oh <laughs> no it was a super awkward thing for him but anyways i looked at marshall's uh linkedin he uh he knows i did because you probably got a, a notification from that but i also checked out his instagram really cool stuff going on there we're going to get into all of it on this episode of the prairie farm podcast and speaking of the Prairie Farm Podcast, I hope you guys have tuned into Nicholas's uh, recent drop of the Iowa water quality thing. It's a great listen. Um, I'm going to be much more selective where I allow my kids to swim in the summer. And yeah. uh, I might get a uh, really uh, high-tech water filter on my house now just because of uh, everything Nicholas uh, was was uh, figuring out in his investigation. But Anyways, we're back here on the podcast. We got Marshall with Wild Rivers Coffee. And if you tune into Coffee Time Wednesday, you'll know that Wild Rivers is a sponsor on that show. And uh, so we thought we'd just jump in here on the deep end, literally and figuratively, I guess, Marshall. When I was uh, creeping on your LinkedIn, dude, you were like a serious swimmer, man. Like, Olympic trials, a lot of years. Yeah, Olympic and, uh, trials and stuff. Yeah, well, and it's funny because you know I like to think I was pretty good at swimming, but I married a woman who is better at swimming than I was. Wow! You know? Wow! 
And so within our world, I'm like the low man on the uh, <laughs> over here. Yeah, you're like naming your achievements. She's like, oh, yeah, I remember when I did that in junior high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually, uh, we just moved across the country. And, uh, you know, as, as happens when you move, you got a room full of boxes. It's kind of the last one to get to. And I was like, honey, you got like six boxes of stuff from college. Like, like we got to get it down to one. So I started just tearing <laughs> stuff out of here. There's like three boxes of trophies of like NCAA trophies and all this <laughs> oh stuff. I'm like, That's all crazy. right, well, I guess I have to build a trophy case for you. So I spent all weekend this weekend putting together a bookshelf to display all of her trophies. <laughs> That's nice. awesome. That's a good move. Good move. Yeah. Okay. But she's actually, I mean, circling back to Wild Rivers, you know, she's the the other co-founder of, of the business. And, you know, it's, we, we've done a lot of things together over the years. We met competitive swimming and have a very you know, unique relationship and that we have a lot of hobbies that overlap and, you know, we like to do a lot of things together. She comes hunting with me a lot. We swim together. We work out together. Uh, and then we decided to start a company together, which was totally different. Wow. <laughs> wow. Together That's... all the time. Do you guys, yeah. have, did you guys have uh full-time jobs elsewhere and you're just doing this on the side? Totally. Yeah. Man. It was a side project. Um, still kind of is, although we, uh, we brought on, um, uh, Benton and Katie as uh, co-owners last year who have taken the day-to-day management over and really kind of poured gasoline on the, uh, the mission mm. to grow the brand and, and the impact. That yeah. is so awesome. Yeah, finding, awesome. finding co-owners that can operate. Cause a lot of times like entrepreneurs in quotes are starters and then they're like, they get it started and they're like, all right, <laughs> I'm ready for someone else to do this now, you know, and then, but finding totally. that can be hard. So. Yeah, that is awesome that you guys have worked so well as a team here, both you and your wife, and then now you and your your you know Bentley and and or Benton, not Bentley. I just met a Bentley the other day, uh, Benton and uh, his wife. And uh, I gotta imagine like the husband wife side of that, like that's got to be kind of fun, like almost like uh, you can relate to your your like coworkers better that way. Is it has has that dynamic? I mean, you just it's just not a very common thing where like two husband and wife couples are working on the same project. Yeah, it was very unique the way we were even connected. We had a number of folks approach us over the years about investing in or you know buying out or or different types of relationships, and we'd always kind of turn them down because for us it was a passion project. It was something mm-hmm. we worked on kind of on the side, but we poured a lot into and. You know, it was a good, a good, healthy business that we were growing sure. and it was having the impact we wanted. And Benton reached out to me over a year ago, actually via Instagram, which I can't even believe I saw it because it's like one of my North Stars, like, don't check Instagram messages or read comments. But, uh, <laughs> I, I saw his message and I was like, yeah, this feels different. This is like a really genuine note. And so I messaged him back and said, hey, you know, why don't we connect? And he was on the board for BHA in Ohio, which really mm-hmm. stood out to me as like, oh, we have definitely have aligned values. And so we had a couple of conversations and I realized that, you know, he's married. He's He's got a lot of same, you know, similar outlooks on the world. Christian guy, Christian family. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got two little girls that are about the same age as our girls. And so it's just like, man, that people are pretty cool. We got a lot in common. And then they actually just booked a plane ticket and came out and uh, stayed with us for a few days. And we went out to dinner with them and got to know them. And it just felt like one of those things that was, you know, it was just kind of meant to be. 
and yeah. uh, they really mm -hmm. were passionate about growing the business and we were kind of maybe a little bit just like content you know we were mm, very happy yeah. with what we had built but not really ready to pour the gas on it and so they they got us excited about the potential to really grow it and scale it and you know potentially work on bringing on a brick and mortar location and and really mm. you know investing in it so it just worked out man it was really great and and it, to your point like it is very unique that we're you know two husband and wife couples that are yeah. in very similar stages of life and have a lot to relate to each other on talk about and just makes it very easy man that is really cool where he's just like i'm gonna i'm gonna come out i'm gonna fly out and and see you and just like found you on social media what when uh when you were talking to him because like core values lining up that that's cool um and needed but what was it where you were where where was it different like why anyone else that was offering to invest or poor and why was working with him different I mean, I work in the startup world and, you know, I'm very used to kind of like the venture capital mindset of just, you know, grow and churn. Mm -hmm. And that's really not what we want to do with this business. You know, it is a passion business. We're a mission-based coffee company, you know, committed to giving portions of proceeds back to different nonprofits that support wildlife and habitat. And so this idea that we're just going to grow it and sell it was not really appealing to us we yeah. and he never approached it like that you know he approached it as like truly building a, a lifestyle business right like something they want to hold on to for a long time they see opportunity to scale and really you know that component of building the impact of the brand was really important to him and it's shown through and in, in you know his why and why they were interested in it and so it, it was a natural fit man what something that is like striking about you guys and your situation is we were just interviewing sean garrity 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 uh yesterday and uh and nick is gone <laughs> <laughs> and the and his whole thing was like starting he was really good at starting things starting quote-unquote businesses or nonprofit things um but starting things that like have a real purpose um, because yeah, VCs or venture capitalists, you know, that's cool. They're trying to stimulate economic growth, but then there's kind of like this turn and burn, use up your resources where you can turn it into money or turn it into economic value. And, and you get to saying like, no, we, we think there's a balanced way to do this economic thing. Um, and, uh, it seems kind of, to me, it just seems so fascinating that we would interview him and then the next person we interview is has a very strong organization in uh um in the circle of trying to make a difference you know trying to do something more than the value of the dollar and i think that's really cool so i'm going to blow your mind one step further and tell yeah. you like for the first time that we're really talking about this outside of our own little circles that we're working on a huge partnership with apr right now oh really uh, what <laughs> that's yeah. awesome really yeah so we're actually uh we're going to take our new bison roast which is our, uh -huh. our dark uh, our dark mm -hmm. roast and we're going to do a co-branded bag with the apr story on the back and uh hopefully q2 of this year we're going to be rolling out a co-branded pack where you know 10 percent of proceeds go back to apr we're actually going to challenge ourselves internally to, to go bigger and better than that and figure out a way to kind of add on top of the 10 percent commitment wow but, we're going to be rolling incredible. that out here in a few months. So it's, it's you've been the out there then? World, news in our world right now. 
Yeah, that that's awesome. Cool. That's I well, love it when things uh you ever do that like you read uh maybe you're like reading on a certain topic, you know, like a historical topic and uh the author of a book that you're reading starts quoting the author of the book that you just finished reading or something like that you know where like the everything you you can tell you're tri- triangulating on something pretty special when you start hitting the same the same uh story from different directions and so it kind of feels like that right now when mm. when uh you mentioned that you know that's that's really cool and good on you guys for buying into that i mean I, there's there's really nothing else like uh, American Prairie in, uh, you know, in our country, on our continent, really, uh, right now. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a worthy cause to be, to be supporting. I think a little while ago, there was a pastor that told me, um, or I, I actually, I think he was preaching from the pulpit and he said, uh, uh, you know, that you're not listening when God has to tell you something more than once. And, uh, <laughs> this is like the fourth, like, Hey, you should go out to American Prairie APR and and give it a visit that I've had in the past maybe six months. The first was Kent being like, dude, we should just go out together. It'd be so cool. You know, yeah. we'd have a great time. And now uh here I think we he just are doesn't want to go with me. I think he wants to go. He just doesn't want me along. No, 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 no. If I was gonna go with anyone, it would be with Kent. But uh yeah, have you been? Have you hung out at APR much? Not at APR. I've been to Montana a bunch and hunted Montana and fished Montana this year. I go to Montana a decent amount for my, my job at Force of Nature because we've got a network of bison suppliers in Montana. Um, one of my f- absolute favorite places to spend time. I haven't made it out to APR yet, but was actually tar- talking to Mark on their team on our call the other day about making that a, a real priority for the summer. And I've got a trip planned out there now in July. Um, so no, probably awesome. going to swing i'm definitely going to meet with them in bozeman but hopefully get on the ground and swing out east and and actually see the the landscape out there been a huge fan of apr for a long time in fact i used to you know basically only buy high west whiskey because you know there was that added benefit of (laughs) of supporting apr um but just such a cool project and i don't know if you guys have ever read uh dan flores american serengeti or some of those other books about you know, the Great Plains, but, you know, it's really a missing link in our national park mm-hmm. system and our, you know, our, our whole kind of prioritization of, of setting habitat aside. We miss the Great Plains, right? Mm-hmm. So someone that's yep. taking the initiative and really being the leader to to set aside some of that habitat and that ecosystem is, is really cool. Mm-hmm. And we're thrilled to be a tiny part of it. Yeah. Well, well said for sure. Well, you mentioned something a couple times in here now, um, just the importance of hunting and, and, and angling, uh, for that sake, uh, in your life, you know, that's, that's, I have it on our, our notes here for what we're going to talk through as Marshall's wild pursuits. And, uh, I'm a fellow hunter. Nicholas is not, but Nicholas supports hunting and, and, uh, has I'm not anti-hunting. No, just, he's... it's too quiet for me, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, and Nicholas has some interesting, uh, uh, perspective on perspectives on hunting because of what he does for a job. But, um, uh, you mentioned that you saw that Benton was on the Ohio, the Ohio uh, board for BHA backcountry hunters and anglers. And um, you know, where did, where did your, like, where did that 
passion, that lifestyle, where did that come from for you getting into hunting and, and fishing and enjoying the outdoors in that way? Yeah. Well, to just to touch on BHA really quick, I think BHA is cool because it's kind of hunters and anglers across the board or just users of the outdoors, right? Yeah. That have come together under a common cause to protect habitat and, you know, prioritize access issues. And so the fact that he was a part of that organization just kind of signaled to me like, hey, we got a lot in common. Mm-hmm. And I think BHA has done a really good job of rallying people who come at the outdoors from a lot of different angles and saying, hey, we want to be proactively part of the solution right like we don't just want to be users and be complacent users we want to be kind of protectors and stewards and conservationists and i think that's really cool but i mean my story of why i even care about any of that i mean can't be told without talking about hunting you know i grew Mm -hmm. up a suburban kid you know outside of atlanta georgia i love being outside but you know sticking to you know where i grew up just never really had any you know i think i i don't think i saw a white-tailed deer until it was you know, at least 10 years old. They just weren't around at that time. Sure. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, I had an uncle that was really into hunting and he lived in California. Mm. Believe it or not, there is great hunting in yeah. California. <laughs> you met the uh, one hunter from uh, California. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, it's kind of a subculture out there, but there's a huge waterfowling culture and, and the Pacific Flyway is just mm. phenomenal. Um, anyways, you know, I went hunting for the first time with him. I think it was in middle school and just kind of opened my eyes to this this whole world of engaging with nature in a different way. And I mean, he's a real conservationist in my eyes. He's what I would call a bird nerd and can sit there in the blind with you and tell you about every, you know, game and non-game species that you can see from half a mile away in the sky. I'll tell you what it is and why That's it cool. is what it is. And, you know, as a young kid, I was just super inspirational to me. And, you know, it kind of sent me down this path of wanting to learn everything I could about hunting and, sure. you know, take the opportunity to go hunting whenever I could. And, you know, my story is kind of weird in that, you know, I, I got into it and excited about it middle school and high school, like most kids do. And then, you know, for five years, I basically put that hobby in a closet. You know, I went to college in downtown DC and lived in an apartment, high rise, didn't have a car, was illegal to own a firearm. And, you know, outside of Thanksgiving and Christmas, Christmas for five years, I, you know, put hunting in a closet per se and yeah. uh, I had this like bottled up passion for it that I just couldn't mm. really like tap into. Yeah. And I think what happened was I, you know, I got out of college, you know, I chased a girlfriend to Texas at the time who's now my wife. And, <laughs> you nice. know, all of a sudden I was free, right? Like I was kind of done with the, yeah. you know, stringent NCAA kind of athletics schedule and had my own time to manage as I please. And I just poured every second into hunting and fishing and being outside and learning that I could. And, you know, I've been doing it ever since. It's like one of those things I feel like I, I never can completely scratch the itch on, but when you spend that much time outdoors and you engage with nature in such a personal way, you just learn things. And, you know, for me, I'm, I'm interested in as much of, you know, what kind of tree am I hanging my tree stand is as I am is how big is is the buck that's going to walk in front of it. You know, to yeah. me, it's the total package. It's the experience. It's watching the sunrise. It's watching the birds, you know, counting how many squirrels pretend to be deer walking in front of you. You know, all of those things to me add up to this thing that is hunting. That's awesome. But it's not just the killing, right? It's the mm-hmm. whole experience. And so I think most hunters over a lifetime of doing it will kind of walk down that same path of realizing it's it's the total experience, right? 
And then you just start to care about protecting that experience and sharing it with people and helping them understand it. And, you know, I have this fundamental belief that we're at a, a crossroads in the, you know, human history where we're just developing the world so quickly, you know, through agriculture, through urbanization, um, through resource extraction that, you know, if we don't make a decision today to kind of put habitat aside and prioritize it, uh, we're not going to have that decision in a hundred years. You know, that point in time will have passed and we'll have developed it and it'll be gone. And we'll be, you know, telling our grandkids about what a salmon was or, you know, what, what a Buffalo was. And I think we have that decision still today, right? Like we can, we can set things aside. We can support things like APR, uh, we can support organizations that prioritize habitat and access. And ultimately, my dream is that my great grandkids have very similar opportunity to access those resources that I do today. Mm, yeah, very well said. And and you're right. Hunting is kind of like the the action that allows you to enjoy all those things that you mentioned, you know, um, but it, you know, I kind of thought of this when you were talking about those five years of college, when you had to put it on the back burner, that's like being on a, uh, uh, if you're a hunter, I think you can relate to this. It's like being stuck on a hike for five years. Um, you never <laughs> notice that when, totally. you go, when you go hiking, it's just like, this ain't it, you know, it's like, it's close, <laughs> but, uh, sure would, uh, rather be like off the trail right now. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah having some kind of uh thing to pursue but but uh no you're right you get to enjoy all those things in that way and it's cool how you've been able to have such a diverse experience as far as our country goes too you know atlanta starting out in atlanta learning to hunt in california going to college in dc heading to texas you know and now you're in oregon you've seen a lot of the country and you know the the different as far as hunting goes there's there's you know I think if you're outside that community, you kind of think, oh, you're a hunter. That means during part of the year, you're probably hunting ducks. Another part of the year, you're hunting squirrels. Another part of the year, you're hunting deer. Another part of the year, you're, you know, it's like, no, there's all these little like subcultures within hunting that uh, really kind of follow the geography of our country as well. You know, whitetails in the east, a little bit of both in the middle. And then a lot of uh, elk and and uh, bears and moose and pronghorn out in the west and and mule deer, of course. Um, you know all that, all those different things allow us though. Those different pursuits allow us to enjoy all the things you mentioned in those different ways. We can get into that. You know what? Maybe let's camp on here for a second because I did have it on our on our uh, show notes here for us to hit. Um, I think it's easy for us to, to draw the connection, but maybe, and maybe Nicholas, this would be a good time for you to chime into with some of your observations, just being a person who works around hunters and with hunters a lot, but doesn't hunt himself. Um, when, when you consider our role as hunters and, um, fitting into the, you know, the conservation discussion, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do is not just generally reference conservation, you know, conservation, you know, like there's a goal here, right? We're conserving something and we're doing something to do it. So, so in this discussion, when we're talking about conserving ecosystems, maybe like American Prairie is done, or maybe we're talking about just conserving a certain species or a couple species, 
what do you think is important for hunters to communicate, um, especially now, uh, at this, at this point in American history, what is, what do you think is important for us as hunters to all be communicating to those around us, both, both fellow hunters and non-hunters? Hmm. Well, something I find, uh, you guys can hear me. Yep. Cool. Cool. Something I find interesting about the hunting conservation, um, relationship is hunters are wildly passionate and technically the word passionate means um willing to suffer right the suffering and uh um so that they're passionate i mean just by nature a pun on the word but you go into nature and then you suffer you sit in the cold you sit in the hot you walk for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles uh you deal with mosquitoes you know it, it it you're walking around in the dark, you're getting up way earlier than you need to be. They, by nature, they are willing to suffer. They are willing to be passionate. And here is what passionate people do. And hunters, probably more than anyone, they're willing to spend resources mm-hmm. on what they believe in. For instance, there's a lot of people who are quote unquote passionate about the NFL, but then how do you figure out how passionate? Well, how many tickets do you buy every year? How much money do you spend on it? How many shirts of your team do you have? Right. That's that's kind of how you can see how much passion someone can say they're passionate about something. For instance, let's something all of us can relate to. You could say you're really passionate about Christ in the church. Uh, do you go? You know, do you get up in the morning <laughs> on Sundays and, and do you go? You know, so there are indicators yeah. of how passionate people are. And hunters hit every single mark. Even the lowest level of hunters have to to some degree get up like put on way more layers of clothes. If you're going deer hunting here in Iowa, you know, then, then needs to be, you're waking up way too early. You know, you're trying to be quiet. Yeah, there's just, there's just so much they're willing to do. And so when you come to where that meets with conservation is they say, Hey, if I'm willing to spend money on all this gear, if I'm willing to um, get up really early, if I'm willing to do these things, but then there's nothing to hunt, not even no, no fauna, but there's no flora to hunt in. Well, then this is all useless. So what do they do? Well, yeah, they spend their time and energy, but also then they're willing to spend money. Um, And when you put more sweat equity and money equity into a thing, you care more about it. So it's this upward spiral for hunters where they're investing more. So they're giving more. So they're caring more. So they're investing more. So they're giving more, you know, and, and, um, and that I've found really interesting about, about hunters, especially on the, on the topic of trying to save ecosystems as a whole. Um, even Sam Walton, Sam Walton was a huge conservationist, you know, and, and he put, he's put millions or I guess he's dead now. He's put millions of dollars into, um, conservation because specifically he loved hunting, mm-hmm. loved bird hunting. Yeah. Something that's really interesting. You just phrased that in a way I'd really never considered or thought about, but your definition of passion, mm-hmm. you know, being willing to suffer I think something I would add on to that is kind of a similar definition as applied to hunting is willing to show restraint, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the history of our country and you look at what happened with market hunting in the 1800s, you know, driving nearly to extinction, bison and elk and all these other game species. And then a lot of the folks that really stepped up to show restraint, right? To create game laws, to create limits, to create seasons, 
you know, were folks that had come from that community and saw the destruction and wanted to invest in rebuilding it. I think if fast forward to today, you'll never find a more spirited kind of quote unquote, like bar conversation to have than to talk about like antler point restrictions or, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know tag allocation yeah. than a group of hunters, right? Like they, cause they're all invested in like in the thing they want to pursue and having access to it. And so they're super, you know, using that word again, passionate about it. Right. And they're willing to show restraint to harvest one buck a year. Maybe it's, you know, pass on a year of, of hunting if it, you know, creates a thing they want in the future. Yeah. Yeah. That was both of you put that so well. I've ne- and I agree with you, Marshall. I've, you know, I've followed this stuff as hard as, as anybody can. And I've never heard somebody explain the hunting side like Nicholas just did there. That that was very good, Nick. We need, oh, thanks. We need to save that sound. Yeah, I'll clip that. <laughs> that was I always feel awkward clipping something I said, like sitting in the editing room, being like, "Yeah, what I said was." <laughs> no, that was good. That can but, be. Uh, you could probably sell that to some different groups out there, some uh, different uh, hunting uh, advocacy groups. That was that was beautiful, man. I'll leave that for me, but, uh, brother. <laughs> I, uh, no, that was that was that was really good. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and Marshall. Um, along with that restraint too, I think it's, I think it's important that, that, um, people outside of hunting understand that aspect that we, it's not just a, and you meant you alluded to this earlier. It's not just a thing that we're going out there just to kill them all. You know, we're not, there's, there's a value system within what we're doing. You know, that's why if a guy goes and poaches a a 220 inch buck, as soon as that is, that is found out by the remainder or, you know, the rest of the hunting community, um, there's no, Oh man, good job getting a big buck. It's like, dude, what are you doing? You know, that, that is, that is disgusting, you know. Yeah, and, there's no one that wants to impose worse penalties on that stuff than hunters, right? right. Like, if you, think if you ask a bunch of, like, ethical hunters what should happen to that guy, they're like, oh, dude, pick his toes out. Like, one yeah. of <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Whereas, like, other people, like, don't quite understand, like, why the angst, right? Yeah. It's like, no, dude, we follow the rules. It's not cool unless you follow the rules. Right. And it's one of the few things that exist like that. I mean, I mean, think about, like, there isn't – there isn't near that response for say like, um, you know, doping in sports, you know, like in some cases, maybe if it's a big enough deal, kind of like what Lance Armstrong went through, but, but, uh, you know, in most cases, it's just kind of like, yeah, that guy's got that on his rap sheet. He went through a suspension time. Now he's back and hopefully we win with him. You know, it's just, it's, it's a totally different value system that I, again, goes back to what Nicholas is saying about that. But also there's a, so, and, and that fits into the conservation of those species that fits into, um, you know, maybe more the wildlife management side of it, but there's also, I think, and Marshall, I'll let you jump in on this one. There's a whole side of how does that passion for hunting affect conservation needs for a bunch of species that maybe aren't even animals, <laughs> you know, but also, um, a lot of non-game animal species too yeah i mean conservation is an ecosystem level topic right and i think hunters Mm -hmm. understand like you don't protect white-tailed deer without protecting you know mass producing trees right Mm -hmm. feed the deer and you know whether they care or not about the squirrels that live in those trees or the wood ducks that use the 
you know, the cavities to nest in, like, you know, I think you talk to 10 different hunters, you got 10 different levels of like why they care, how much they care, how much they know. Mm-hmm. But at the very basic level, like they want to save habitat. They know they have to create habitat and save habitat to preserve the thing that they really want, which is the deer. Right. Yeah. And so yep. depending on who you talk to, they might unpack that a different way. But the like to use Ducks Unlimited as an example, right? Like their mission is to conserve wetland ecosystems for the preservation and proliferation of waterfowl but Mm -hmm. wetlands are some of the most productive ecosystems for filtering clean water Mm -hmm. providing habitat for things like beavers all kinds of birds i mean they're one of the most productive ecosystems in the world and so just by having this value set that prioritizes waterfowl you've got all these side benefits of creating habitat for all these other things and these ecosystem benefits like clean water for humans. Like that's pretty important. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. And, um, and, and DU is just one of many, you know, uh, pheasants forever, the millions of acres that they've influenced, um, either through directly purchasing land and then turning it up, turning the access over to the public or helping landowners acquire, uh, you know, seed for CRP or helping landowners plan for taking low production acres out of production and conserving those acres. I mean, that's just two organizations. We could go on and on listing all the different groups, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, bringing elk back east of the Mississippi River. Um, You know, just... Speaking of which, so glad Marshall mentioned the clean water thing again. Go listen to Nick's uh, podcast. But we are also going to have a rep from uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation on next week. Um, We'll be recording with him. Not sure when the episode will drop. But again, just uh, all of that centered around hunting, all those incredible works, like Marshall said, that benefited so many other things uh, downstream of that. It's just it's impossible to deny that importance from that. So yeah, great points. Um, so have you and, uh, have you and Benton done any hunting together yet? Have you guys, uh, chased ever some big Ohio bucks? No, I haven't been to Ohio yet, but the, uh, the weekend he came to visit us in Texas was Turkey season. So we got out for, I mean, it's a turn and burn trip, right? Mm -hmm. You know, quick weekend deal, but we got out and hunted some turkeys you know, we got, got a little bit of action, didn't get a turkey, but we got to spend some time wearing camo together and marching around yeah. the woods, getting up too early, you know, driving hour and a half there, hour and a half back. So I almost planned that hunt more than anything, just because I wanted the car time and wanted to get down to like brass tacks of, you know, yeah. figuring out who this guy was. Most people can pretend to hack it over dinner with a glass of wine, but, you know, let's throw on some camo and go walk around in the woods and figure out what we're each about. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. Good little uh, test of genuine, genuine uh, hunting prowess there, right? Uh, yeah, and just character, right? Like yeah. I think, you know, you get people away from the humdrums of everyday life and start to unpack who you are and have those deeper conversations and see how much you care, right? Yep. Yep. That's right. And that windshield time is super valuable too. That's honestly, whenever I do a hunting trip, that's one of my favorite parts. Is is the ride there and back with the person I'm going with, just getting that time to talk, like you said. So yeah, very even, cool. even sometimes without the person there to talk with, I yeah, like I've actually told some of my buddies, like when we do these big western hunts, like I'd almost rather drive than fly. I know it like burns Definitely. some time, like 
one of the reasons I really like to go on these Western hunts, you know, at least once a year is I like the week, like the fully blocked off week on my calendar, no computer, like it's biblical to be still. Right. And although Mm -hmm. I'm not like physically being still like during that week, I'm being very active, you know, probably more physically active than I am the rest of the year, hiking 10 or 15 miles a day. But in in a different way, I'm being very still, right? I'm You're blocking out the noise. Yeah, I'm blocking. I'm listening to nature. I'm being connected to the world mm-hmm. around me, not through this little thing that fits in my pocket, right? I'm I'm actually like kind of silently engaging and listening, and just being present. And then I think that drive there and back, it like it gives you time to like prep for it mentally. But then on the yeah. way back, it's like you kind of get to unpack everything and then like relook at your life. And I've had some of the most like almost like life altering career changing, you know, just path changing thoughts and decisions I've made, you know, on the way back from a hunting trip where I come back, I'm like, not, nah, I'm going to take a different approach at this going ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good observation. I also like that the drive because, and it seems kind of counterintuitive compared to flying, but you kind of almost get to see earth as a planet, uh, as opposed to just like, specific locations on the map you know you you know as you head west you just see that elevation change on the on the continent and and uh see how the habitat changes to follow that you know especially montana is probably the best example of that in my opinion you know just on the as soon as you get into eastern montana it's just the open prairies you got pronghorn running around everywhere and then you kind of start getting into custer national forest territory and you start seeing you know more trees more rocky outcroppings then you start getting to like i don't know maybe like billings and you can kind of start see the start to see the mountains off in the off in the distance then you're in the mountains and now it's a totally different thing there too you know all that all that stuff that you just get to appreciate the planet better i think uh when when you're present like you said and having that quiet you know where you're just engaged in the drive and looking around what's going on around you so yeah yeah i love that so uh the the we've talked about kind of how so you and your wife started wild rivers Benton and uh, his wife, Katie, came on to uh, partner with you guys, and, and now they're co-owners and and managing the business out in Ohio. Do you guys have a brick-and-mortar location now in Ohio, or is that still something that's that's down the road? Well, it's down the road, but it's something we talk about every day, and it's just it's a matter of kind of finding the right place and, like, where are we going to plant yeah. our flag in the ground? Mm-hmm. My uh, wife and I right now are opening a brick-and-mortar and it opens april 20th but it's cool. a yeah it's quite a quite an experience so wishing you the best of luck give me a call if you got any questions yeah well geographically you guys aren't that far from benton and katie um where what katie. city are they in because my wife's family's in uh um dayton and i'm there a few times a year they're in northwest ohio i'm not sure exa- they just moved so forgive me i forgot the name of the town they moved to um, yeah but certainly connect and love to share war stories and <laughs> best practices and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't know if I found any best practices, but I definitely got the war stories. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. those are the best conversations. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No. So that's really cool that you guys found a, a partner on that, but you really, you didn't just say, you know what, let's have camouflage bags. We both love hunting. 
and uh, let's just make this all about hunting, which I don't think that's wrong. There are coffee brands out there that have done that, um, uh, and that's fine. Um, but uh, you guys kind of, I feel like, went for a little bit higher target. Um, you wanted to benefit conservation through your coffee business and uh, your members of uh, uh, we got the the stamp of approval from 2% for conservation. Um, that's been around for a long time and is a wonderful organization that um, recognizes uh, companies who are doing what you guys are doing. Was that something from the very get go that you and your wife were like, Hey, let's, when we start this business, we want it to be, you know, we want to have that cause of tying it to funding conservation work. Or um, is that something that kind of evolved as Benton and Katie jumped on board? No, it was definitely from the jump. You know, I think I worked in the coffee business prior to joining Force Nature for five or six years and got out of that. And just have always been really passionate about coffee. And so, we knew we wanted to get back in the space. I think eventually we'll open a brick and mortar out here in Oregon, kind of have an East and West hub and grow the, the brick and mortar presence. Mm-hmm. But like when we launched the brand and kind of designed the brand, we knew conservation was the cornerstone, right? I think hunting is just how I got to caring about conservation. I think, you know, we wanted to appeal to people who like to hike, you know, yeah. just as much as I like to hunt. Right. Mm-hmm. And it can just gather around this shared value of creating habitat, preserving habitat, you know, prioritizing wildlife. Um, and so we really built that into the brand, the packaging. And, and the two kind of like North Stars for us are like building kingdom from a Christian perspective and sharing the gospel and, you know, mm-hmm. getting people excited about conservation and preserving our home on planet Earth. Uh, because mm-hmm. I think we're called to be stewards right? Yeah. Yep. That's right. And, uh, and so that's what we did. Like we have Bible verses on all of our bags. Um, we tried to get really inspirational with the design in terms of just inspiring people to, to care and to look into, you know, Hey, these guys are 2% certified, which to me just means like, I'm telling consumers like, Hey, we put our money where our mouth is. It's Mm -hmm. not just a pretty bag with, we're not using wildlife to sell something, right? Like we we truly value it. We're not just going to put a bighorn sheep on our Mm -hmm. bank because it gets people fired up. It's like, we're going to use the image to inspire change and to inspire people to care. Yeah. And so, you know, we want people when they go to our website to look into why we partner with these organizations, learn about them, and then hopefully be inspired on their own, you know, number one, buy our coffee, because if you care about conservation and good coffee, it's a good place to land. But two, even if you don't like, go check out Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and all the cool work they're doing, VHA or, you know, all these other things. There's, you know, there's something there that we want to share with people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. um, When, when you're talking to people about like the kingdom or for people that don't know what we're referring to, we're talking about the kingdom of God. One of the commands that Christ gave before he left is that we would build his the the kingdom of god and uh and but also conservation now i am making a general anecdotal observation but the venn diagram on that is is fairly separated it's not most of my uh christian friends don't a lot of them i'd probably say the majority 
Man, Nick just going for the choke slam. Dude, here. I know. Nice. I'm trying I'm trying to talk it through. We got a really cool, we got a really cool interviewee who uh who has a good perspective on it. But my point is that, that most of my Christian friends don't don't care about conservation. I'm not saying that they hate it. Some think it's bad. It's like just democratic pop propaganda from the government, you know, that some actually believe that. Um, but most of them just had never talked about it in their life until I started saying like, Hey, uh, you know, that species is invasive, you know, like that annoying friend who's like, Oh, that's such a pretty flower. It's like, yeah, it's from Eurasia. It's terrible for you. Uh, yeah. but, uh, I feel like what you're touching on though is more just a symptom of where we're at and, you know, our society and a reflection of just most people living in urban areas without that experience of a father or a grandfather mm -hmm. who prioritized getting them into the outdoors. And so what you're talking about is like, you know, your friend group and, you know, mostly Christian folks, but it's really like you go talk to any random subset of 10 people in the United States, just by the numbers, none of them are going to be hunters because less mm -hmm. than 10% of the U.S. population yeah. hunts. Yeah, yeah. And, that's and fair. I, I just I heard also, today on a podcast that number is 4%. 4% of Americans hunt. Yeah, I've always heard like 3 or 4% are like actively engaged in, in hunting. Mm -hmm. That I, I would rebuttal on that a little bit because um, I we're in an agricultural community and um, most people are about, that I know are about three minutes away from some sort of field, which is not necessarily nature you know very much is is, is at times just a factory but uh um uh, and then but then on the flip side so my question is when you're having those conversations with people um of like hey i believe that you know the kingdom of god part of it means we're supposed to be conserving this earth um the rebuttal that we get uh that we've heard is uh you know in genesis where it talks about subduing the earth and to some people that just means like making it produce for me um i don't know what have your conversations been like when you're talking to people about that yeah well i'm going to quote a verse here for you because it's one of my absolute favorites but uh well a couple of verses but second chronicles 7 through 14 yes if my, dude. if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and i always underline humble themselves and pray mm -hmm. and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So, like, I think there's a lot to unpack there biblically, right? Like, I think, mm -hmm. number one, humble themselves, right? Like, as humans, like, we have this idea, especially as, as things have become easy for us as a society, as a, you know, as Americans, like, we're the wealthiest people in the world. Everything's just easy, right? Like, we have mm -hmm. food, we have shelter, we have all of these things. And so we get this idea that we can do it, right? We can do it on our own. Mm -hmm. And then number two, you know, I look at like turn from their wicked ways, right? Like I see that in some ways as sin. I think it's in other ways, it's over extraction of resource. It's just not taking care of, of the place that we've been given to shepherd, right? And then finally, I look at this and it says, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if the Lord is saying this and he's saying heal their land, then obviously there's value there, right? He's communicating having a healthy home is really important to him and it should be to us, right? Like we're yeah, shepherds yeah. of that, that landscape. And so I have that written on my desk. I think it's applicable to the business I work in and the meat business with regenerative agriculture and raising animals with respect to how they were intended to live out their life. Um, 
And I also think about it just in terms of conservation and like one of the basic principles of conservation to me is like sustainable use, right? Like not overusing, taking more mm -hmm. of our share yep. or more than our share, right? Like leaving some for the future. And so I think there's a lot of, like if you really dig in, there's a lot of biblical references to not putting too much hay in the barn, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, yeah. you could pass away tomorrow. What is all that hay in the barn going to do for you that you didn't share with your neighbor? Right. And I think that yeah. idea of like just sustainable use is, is really, it's biblical and it's really important to acknowledge. And I think making a leap here, like I think people who engage with nature in hunting, like have started to understand like that take too much, get nothing in return type of mindset, right? Like if, mm -hmm. if you've got however big your farm is and you overhunt it one year, there's not going to be much there for you the next year, right? Right. Like, Right. White-tailed deer come from white-tailed deer. You kill all the white-tailed deer, you're not going to have many left to hunt the next year. And so mm. as a hunter, you start to understand and practice these concepts. And I think it, inevitably over the journey over a lifetime, you start to realize, hey, we have to make decisions that mm. you know reflect our passion, Nicholas, to your point, to make sacrifice, to suffer a little bit, right? To have restraint so that we can set things aside to have them in the future. Yeah, very well yeah. said. Very well that said. Well, we need to talk about your your other role, which is uh, Force of Nature Meets. We a lot of the conversation on this podcast does include um, ag topics, um, and you know, you you. This would be a good reminder to folks to go back and listen to another episode, the one where we interview Luke Fritch, a friend of mine who lives on his family's farm, and he talks about how farming has changed over the last. 50, 60 years. And, um, they, I think Nicholas, you titled that article, things ain't like they used to be. And, yeah. um, it has become very much so a squeeze every last drop operation. Um, I want to, I want to jump in there because that I wasn't going to go with this, but you're connecting exactly what he was saying, uh, that about hunters, hunters know, Hey, if I mine everything here, there's nothing for next year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for thousands of years, agricultural practices had to do that. They had to say, hey, I'm going to leave stuff. Like, for, for instance, even when the Israelites were out of Egypt, God said, hey, you got to give the, the land a year rest every seven years. Well, um, and, and, and we just had to do that for thousands of years. Well, then we had some synthetic things. We were able to cultivate or, uh, uh, with GMOs and things like that. And I'm not necessarily saying that GMOs synthetic fertilizer. I'm not saying those are by nature bad. I'm not saying we were just doing evil, wicked things, inventing those. I think we were taking a good step in the right direction, but we haven't had to live by the law of nature. That is, if you take everything out, you won't get anything next year. Um, but instead of it happening year by year, I think we're doing it in like 150 year blocks. We can suck everything out of it in this 150 years, but the next 150 years, we just won't be able to replace it. And um, anyway, that, that you were talking about Luke Fritch and uh, and what we had talked about there. And I was like, I think we should make this point. Yeah. Man, yeah. that is such a, like switching gears and talking about roll-up force of nature. That's kind of one of our fundamental beliefs in regenerative agriculture, like that our frame of reference is too small. Like, you know, with industrial agriculture, like, I'm, again, not everything in about industrial agriculture is bad. So don't anyone hear me say this and say I'm not... I want to put, you know, folks doing and participating in that system. I'm not putting them down, but I think like globally, like we just have to look at our resource extraction 
and we just can't continue to do this. And I think even the span of one lifetime isn't enough to to fully see the impact, right? And mm-hmm. you think about some of the larger issues, the runoff, the you know, just the even just soil testing across our continent that's only been farmed for a few hundred years. You look at organic matter matter in the soil and it's just plummeting year over year. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's only so long you can do that without correcting, you know. The problem right now we see a lot of symptoms and i don't think we've reached the point where it's truly a problem mm, and we no. can either take action today to start you know trending the curve the other direction or we can just close our eyes and ride the hill you know ride it downhill until there is a crash mm, yeah interesting yeah. yeah i just read um a couple of days ago uh we throw away one third of the food produced in the world um and uh that's not you know, I think a lot of that throwing away is happening in places where there's an overabundance and yet there's still many places on the planet where there isn't enough, you know, and, and starvation is still, is still a real problem and a, uh, something that's affecting folks, but it, it highlights the imbalance that exists and, uh, and, and that stems from a system that is designed to, to just get it all. Um, can you talk Man, the about the wasting food thing is just such a travesty. And I feel like to talk about hunters again and sing our own praises, it's like, man, when I when I cook up a meal that I from an animal that I killed, that I carried out of the backcountry, that I butchered, it's like I look at every scrap on that plate that's not finished. Yeah. It's like a personal mission of mine to make sure it gets used, whether I eat it or at the very least I feed it to my dog, right? Even just right. scrap yep. the gristle, it's like Yep. When you're that connected to your food system, it's just that much harder to see something go to waste. Yep. Man, yep. that is really cool. The um be and, and Ken and I have uh, heavily talked about uh composting and like the effects of that. And and I I'm I'm never a fan of saying the government should ban something. I just don't like more government control. It's not part of my in my brain schema. But if there was going to be one thing banned on agriculture, I'd probably vote for uh synthetic fertilizer only because only because we have so much organic matter that could be put on those fields i mean think about like every 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 plate that gets eaten 300 million plates get eaten two or three times a day and then not to mention all of the manure that doesn't get spread on um as well as it should it doesn't get out to the fields where it should that i think that there is we would be able to do that but I don't know. I haven't actually run the math. I just... Well, and just, you know, more, you know, and, and thankfully precision ag, you know, which is born out of the industrial ag uh, system. You know, we got to give credit where credit is due there. Precision ag is, is always, you know, growing, evolving, and it's addressing some of those problems, Nicholas, with uh, over out, you know, over application and, yeah. And, but I mean, it still has a long, that being said, it still has a long way to come because there's still a lot of, you know, heavy nutrient loads washing away into our, our water resources and, and heavy agrochemical, um, uh, you know, washout that's going out to, uh, ultimately to the Gulf of Mexico in much of our country. Uh, and uh, that's causing a whole host of environmental problems there. And so, um, yeah, we still have a lot of a lot of room to improve there. But 
but let's hear about force of nature a little bit. So, um, force of nature is uh, how, what kind of, uh, I guess we should say species, uh, are, are being raised and do you have like various farms and ranchers that you guys work with that, that, um, provide the meat for force of nature? How does, how does it all work out? What, like what's the system there? Yeah, we're a regenerative meat company at national and even international scale uh, now. So we, our specialty is bison and beef. You know, that's Mm -hmm. the bulk of our sales. That's the bulk of our producer groups. Um, We do sell a little bit of venison and elk uh, that we source from New Zealand. And then we we sell actually wild caught wild boar from Texas. Um, But focusing on the, you know, the majority of our business, beef and bison kind of being our you know, shining stars, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, all those animals are raised hundred percent grass fed, grass finished on pasture their entire life in a regenerative system. Uh, we've got pretty stringent, you know, land steward indexes that these folks, you know, follow uh, that, you know, create protocols and processes and recommendations. And, you know, we allow for nuance and different ecosystem, you know, raising bison in Montana is a whole lot different than raising them in Texas yeah, uh, or okay. Canada. And, um, but at the end of the day, we, we want to intentionally leave room for nature, you know, things like mm-hmm. fencing off riparian areas. Uh, we want to, we want to see, you know, very thoughtful management plans, grazing plans. Uh, we believe in mob grazing, you know, awesome. high impact, you know, high rest period type of management mm-hmm. philosophy. Um, and again, just kind of looking at raising animals in nature's image, you know, for a long time, looking at the bison as kind of mm. the example, you'd have had 40 million bison walking around on North America being pushed, you know, in the source, in the search for food, but also being pushed by predators, you know, constantly yeah. being harassed by wolves and grizzly bears and mountain lions and all these kinds of things and constantly on the move. Um, and even beyond that, you know, they don't want to eat a blade of grass next to where their brother just pooped (laughs) right yeah naturally just migratory species and so even on a small scale we want to manage uh animals kind of in that image yeah how do you do that because don't you need just mass amounts of land you don't you know what you need is a higher human input you know in terms of just you know an actively engaged ranch team Um, it usually in practice looks like, you know, temporary fencing or even electric fencing that's moved, you know, daily. Um, and so, you know, you put animals in a a small pasture that could look like, you know, a hundred animals in just a few acres, but literally every day they are moving and that acre or two acres of land might not see that herd for six months or a year. Mm. And so the recovery being the emphasis, uh, you really allow that the grassland to recover right and one of the the Mm. foundational principles is you think about a blade of grass right it's got stored up energy in the root system when that cow or that bison comes along and takes a bite of that grass it taps into that stored energy in the root system and regrows itself Mm -hmm. right and then the bison comes along and provides the fertilizer the manure the pea all that stuff Mm. they roll around they spread the seeds and then they leave and in a system where that rest cycle is allowed to happen, you take that energy from the roots, you put it out in the form of, of new growth, and you've got a completely vitalized and flourishing ecosystem. In yeah. conventional management, that animal would have continuous access to that blade of grass. 
So as mm -hmm. it's tapping into the, the stored up energy in the root system, that animal might come along and take another bite and then mm -hmm. another bite and then another bite. And so all of a sudden it starts expending all that stored up energy and it loses the ability to re, you know, regrow itself and it ultimately dies. And that's how you get desertification um, and all of these kind of negative impacts and, and, you know, making a lot of complex issues kind of simple here, but that's where you get a lot of the negative, you know, kind of talking tracks on, on animal agriculture is these desertified landscapes. Right. And it's really just mismanagement. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. I like how you said that the human, the human inputs are, are the big difference there. You know, we, one of the, we've had a couple different bison farmers on the podcast in the past. And uh, one of them who uh, is just up the road from us, uh, he said this great thing that I thought of when you're talking about moving all those fences. He's like, it's not so much that you're, uh, you're keeping the bison in, you're keeping them happy. <laughs> you're, you're like, you're, you're, and, and that, you know, when you mob graze or paddock graze, that is achieving that you're giving them a, you know, fresh food source constantly. And uh, like you said, it does mimic what nature provides, you know, they're allowed to, I mean, you still have to obviously maintain some level of control over your herd, obviously, you know, that's part of being a herdsman, but um, you're allowing them to do that little, those little micro migrations that they would normally be doing as a free ranging animal out on the, you know, prairie a thousand years ago. And so, uh, I think that's, I think that's really cool. Have you, have you, have you noticed any like specific examples of like, cause you mentioned, you know, it could be like, I'm sure this is maybe more on the extreme end of, of the rotation, but, um, like it could be up to six months that you're not in a spot. Have you noticed like a, a good response from other wildlife, like, oh yeah, they're moving in, you know, a few weeks after the bison have been there. Now we can expect to start seeing, you know, maybe, uh, well, they used to be called bison birds. Now we call them cow birds. They're, they're in there or, or, uh, you know, there's some other organism is in there and extra active. Have you guys noticed any of that with, with, uh, where you're grazing and stuff? Oh, totally. Um, and the thing, anytime you step foot on a regenerative ranch or really just a well-managed ranch thoughtfully grazed mm. the thing that stands out to me is just the, the sound right like the mm. light that is just abundant yeah. like as a human i think I, and this is my challenge to a lot of farmers is just like use your senses to like let's not just take the prescription on what yeah. the chemical industry says you need for your land like use your senses use your hands use your nose use your yeah, ears I like that you know stick your hands in the soil and look at it does it look healthy you know but i think the sounds to me are just the, the biggest thing I always take away from spending time on our, our ranching partners places. It's like, there's just life, man, the bugs, the birds, you know, I'm always obviously, you know, enthralled with seeing the, the big bucks and the other things that are products of sure, these healthy yeah. ecosystems. But man, like the bird life is insane. Mm. Um, and just the sounds of the grasshoppers and all the insects, it's, it's almost like you can walk across the street to another pasture and you don't hear that anymore. Right. And then mm. to me, it's like at the highest level, something's working when you're hearing nature like that. It's like the sounds of life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a, there's one other person that I've heard describe it that way, Nicholas. Do you remember who it was uh, talking about the sound of the prairie? Oh, I remember our conversation. Don't just give just give me like five seconds. We can edit it out if it's too long. I want to think. Um, I want to say Russ Benedict. 
Oh, that was a good guess, but I don't think it was him. Uh, Bob St. Pierre. Bob, Bob St. Yes, Pierre. Yes, I do remember that. Described like our third it. interview ever. <clears throat> yeah, from uh, Pheasants Man. Forever. Uh, he he described that in a similar way. He talked about how when you're in a healthy ecosystem, just the sensory overload that it is. And so that's spot on, Marshall. Very, you know, very well said there. I'm curious about something with your your bison. Um, my wife and I are pretty picky about what meat we eat, which means, or and and buy, which means we pay more. Be, did when you started this endeavor, did you? There was was there already a customer base that were ready to pay more, or did you have to kind of convince people, hey, this is a better way to do life, better way to eat, better way to provide? Oh man, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, I think the founders of our company previously, you know, created a, a company called Epic Bar, and I think through that journey with Epic Bar, they realized they had tapped into something with consumers that there are other people. I were potentially frustrated with the the options available in the marketplace and were willing to spend money to vote with their dollar and buy something that reflected their values on how they wanted animals to be raised mm-hmm. and ecosystems to be managed. And so I think that was the impetus from moving from Epic to them creating a, a force of nature that really built a scaled model to sell, you know, fresh and frozen meat. And I think it's a constant battle, man, because like the industry is, it's, it's, it's tricky for consumers to really even figure out what they're getting, like all the claims, all the labels, all the packaging, you know, it's, yeah. it's tough to decipher what's what, you know, to just an average, the know, green, the green washing that's going on to, to, yeah. And it's like systematic greenwashing, right? It's mm-hmm. just the transparency and honesty and integrity is, is hard to find. And that's really where we've hung our hat is just trying to be as honest and upfront and, have integrity and transparency with our consumer base, you know, letting them know where our, our protein supplies are coming from uh, and just, you know, trying to share our practices and letting people vote with their dollars if they think what we're doing is cool, you know, yeah. and they want to support it and they want to see it grow. You know, for me, you know, I love bison. I always have my entire life for whatever reason, you know, I don't know if it was just my proximity to Ted Turner and Ted's Montana Grill, <laughs> the Braves, which are the best baseball team in existence. But like as a kid, I just somehow got, you know, enthralled with learning about bison and I wanted to be a part of bison. And the more I learned about their history, you know, from nearly going extinct to, you know, rebuilding the populations and a lot of that coming through private herds driven by the, the supply chain, you know, the, the need for meat. You know, I wanted to be a part of supporting that. And so for me, it's like, man, if I go into a, a restaurant and I see bison on the menu, I'm ordering it every time because yeah. I want to send that signal to the industry that, hey, there's a consumer here. And then yeah. if I have the option beyond that, I want a grass-fed, grass-finished, pasture-raised animal because that's how I think bison should live their life, right? So I think mm. if I have the extra option to upgrade, I'm there. And I think there's a lot of people that have said, you know, they're also there and they want that. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very well stated. I mean, the power of the dollar. We talk about that all the time. Nicholas and I do, especially on coffee times, <laughs> coffee time Wednesdays. Um, we talk about how, you know, the call to institute new laws to force people to do stuff, but we shouldn't need that. We get more control over things if we just choose to make the right choice. And uh, the the dollar is a, a super powerful tool. Um, in some ways, you know, we we always, you know, we're, we're going through uh, the pre-election 
phase right now, right? We just had the caucuses here in Iowa a few weeks ago and we had, you know, New Hampshire just did their primaries and on and on it'll go down to South Carolina next, I think. And, and, um, you know, we, we talk about how much does my vote matter? Well, one thing I can tell you that does matter is your dollar and, uh, where you send that dollar holds a lot of weight and you don't have to be, you know, a certain age, you don't have to have, uh, any kind of status. You can just spend your dollars where, where you think they matter and on what you believe in. And it will eventually bring about uh, a change that matches that. So, you know, one thing I've, I've thought about a lot, Marshall with that, because, um, my wife and I, we try to, you know, do a similar thing that Nicholas talked about there where we're mindful of where we're getting our protein and stuff, but there's still like, like when you just go grocery shopping or I do a lot of hunting. And so that, you know, hunting provides a lot of our protein. Um, we, have, we know people that raise chickens, so we buy eggs from them most times, or even when you go to the grocery store, there's, there's, um, you know, options available there. And, and, uh, just like if you wanted to buy meat from force of nature, but there's still like these, these, um, I don't know if this is the right term, but maybe blind spots in the market where like, unless you're super intentional and maybe like plan ahead and pack, you know, a sandwich or something like, let's say you're on a trip you got to stop at a gas station and get something to eat, or you got to go through the drive through and get something to eat. Most of those options are going to be, um, sourced just because of price. The price point, right. Is, is what those, those entities have made a, one of their goals, right? We want to keep our prices super low. So we get more business. Is there any, do you know of any like movement within the, um, I guess we could say the alternative protein industry, um, the regenerative protein and industry to start maybe supplying some fast food chains or maybe even some major gas station chains to start using meat that's raised in a, you know, more sustainable, ethical, regenerative way? Yeah. I mean, going back to our founder's previous company, I mean, Epic Bar was, kind of founded on that principle of like i feel like unfortunately we as a society have prioritized convenience over all else and a lot of opportunities yes very and i think well there's said. a lot of reeling back on that now as we kind of see the consequences of convenience you know and obesity and other things yep. and so i think epic was a great example you can buy an epic bar at a lot of gas stations right yep. it's, a, it's a meat bar on the go you can throw it in your backpack and eat yeah, i've had them, i've had them before they're great yeah but like, you know, on the like the fast food side of it, you know, we actually recently have made a lot of great strides forward in working with some food service providers. There's a, you know, a chain of burger restaurants called Hop Dottie Burger Bar. It's got yep. 50 plus locations across the southern U.S. And really, I love Hop Dottie. I oh, Hop love, is awesome. Oh, yeah. I had them when I went to college <clears throat> in Dallas. Oh, man. I did not realize yeah. that you guys are connected. That's cool. Yeah, so Hop Dotty, all their bison comes through our supply chain. We're really proud of that. They, they buy a portion of their beef from us, and you kind of have that option to upgrade as a consumer when you're in a Hop Dotty restaurant. And again, vote with your dollar. I think that's super yep. important. People here, and if there's one thing for sure in this country, you know, I love freedom, I love capitalism, and I love the opportunity we all have to participate that and vote, right? So think about that when you consume, right? 
especially yeah. at a place that's giving you the option to upgrade and, and show them that you care. You know, we work with another uh, chain of restaurants called True Food Kitchen. Same thing, right? Like they feel like they've touched a nerve with consumers who care uh, and they buy a lot of bison from us and we're looking to grow that partnership. So I think we're just on the, like, we're at the tip of the spear on this, this movement right now. I think uh, while I don't agree with the plant-based companies, we like to call them false prophets, right? Mm, like they pointed yeah. out a huge problem, but they're presenting the wrong solution, our yeah. opinion. Uh, they've done a really great job waking up the consumer base to, you know, the concerns of, of the commodity industry. Right. And so I think we like to think of ourselves as in the meat business as reclaiming the legacy of meat, because we're, we're providing consumers with an option that reflects their values. They don't, people tell you like, man, I love meat. I don't want to stop eating meat. I feel bad about these things I'm hearing about it, but I want to keep eating it because I think it tastes good. I think it's good for me. Um, And so we, we like to think we give them that option and we're kind of re- reclaiming that legacy. What we're doing like with these regenerative principles is not like new technology. It's not right. like a new world, you know, view. Yeah, it's, it's actually it's, it's more it's reminding like a, me of a, it's reminding me of like the localized small farm market is what it reminds me of. Yeah. But you can do it on large scale. I mean, we've got ranchers that are running hundreds of thousands of acres of land regeneratively. It's not that it can't be run at a a large scale. It's just that it's, it's more of an old world view of ranching. Right. And Mm -hmm. one of the coolest things about it to me is the human input element of it. Right. Like, I think jobs are a huge problem as we look to the future and how much technology has almost eliminated a lot of jobs one of the coolest things about regenerative agriculture to me is it's like, it's giving people a very fulfilling opportunity to engage, you know, in farming and ranching. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what could have been replaced by technology is now potentially going to be replaced by humans that have a very fulfilling career opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think if you talk to a lot of young people and like you broke it down and were like, Hey, you could live a life on the land, working with your hands, working with animals and hopefully we create the value there as consumers that you can make a good living, right? Like you can have a good life. I think there's a lot to unpack there. What is a good life, right? But you can make enough money to support your family and live this, this life that I think a lot of people yearn for, right? Like mm-hmm. they learn for that, yearn for that connection to nature, to get their hands dirty, to work with animals. Yep. Yeah, I agree 100%. And the the human input part of it too, just from a human health standpoint, as as we depend so much on our technology and um, you know, the the industrialized model, it takes away human you know, human effort. Like we're you know, you mentioned the the obesity crisis. You know, we've it's because it's easier to get calories than it is to get rid of them. So now you got to go pay money to get a gym, a gym membership, just so you can go somewhere to be able to, you know, basically be physically active enough for a half an hour or an hour to try and get yourself on the right side of that ratio of calorie intake to calorie out output. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, like that should that's not good as as Carol would say right Nicholas and it's no, that's uh, not good yeah it's 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 a part like that should wake us up a little bit like hey why do I need to go run on a hamster wheel oh because yeah. because my job doesn't allow me to get out of a chair all day long and it only makes me have to use my brain and doesn't make me have to use my hamstrings and my my 
uh, biceps and my, you know, on and on down the list, right? We just, we get stuck and uh, it, it's, and then there's because of the physical health problem, then we have a mental health problem that an emotional health problem that stems off of that oftentimes. And a lot of it would go back to if we could, if we had these outlets, like you're talking about being able to participate in farming and ranching and, you know, again, I'll, I'll try and link this back to the the small farm side of it. That's awesome hearing that it's already in place. And, and was it hop dotty? I, Hop Dottie Burger Bar, True Food Kitchen. Um, we're looking at a couple other bigger, uh, you know, more impact level restaurant chains yeah. to grow with in the future. But I think, again, just like vote with your dollar as a consumer, yeah. like show these places that what they're doing, the choices they're making are in line right. with your values and you're willing to pay for it. Right. Yeah. Those other chains are going to be looking around. They're going to see how these restaurants are, you know, what, how are they finishing, you know, their their financial year are they are they getting more business are they putting up more locations all the different measurables there are to see the success in their business they say hey maybe we should adopt some of what they're doing and uh man how awesome would it be if you could pull up to a mcdonald's when you're you know on a road trip and know that hey i can actually get a free range bison burger from mcdonald's now or i can get you know cage-free chicken nuggets or i can get you know go down go on down obviously there's other concerns there with with how food is processed and so forth and how healthy it is but but um you know if you knew that it was going to become the norm where that was and and even again what i was going to say about the small farm aspect is if you could start having some of these these forgotten farmsteads repopulated with families that are raising chicken that can go to a local market and go and supply you know like what if what if uh casey's was able to casey's the big gas station here in the midwest i don't know if you knew that marsh you've probably seen a few as you've uh traveled across the midwest but um imagine if casey's which is based out of ankeny iowa their corporate headquarters i believe isn't that right nicholas oh yeah and uh imagine if they could say hey all of our poultry that we sell here is sourced 100 from uh, you know, small farms in Iowa and, you know, what a, what a difference that'd make. And then you could do the same maybe with pork eventually. And, and, uh, now you're talking, you know, continent sized, uh, change that has a healthier landscape and you get, get back to some of those benefits that Marshall and his, uh, his team at force of nature have seen on their ranches, man, that would be, that'd be the dream <laughs> really which i think is probably where we need to we need to probably start wrapping this one up here let marshall get back to where he's a busy guy i got some more uh, prairie coreopsis to go uh um grind up out in the shop floor and uh run through the seed cleaner here soon but um and i marshall, need a nap <laughs> nick needs a nick needs a nap and he needs to download google chrome i'm sorry if you guys keep hearing that little Bung. from nicholas rejoining the conversation over and sorry, over sorry you guys i i am not going to pull my hair out trying to edit that uh, but i can't call him too much of a boomer because i f- figured out what was wrong with my recording software i had the wrong i didn't have my my headphones selected as the output i had the microphone selected as the and output. kent leaves his flashlight on his phone all the time <laughs> so <laughs> it's like the most i have been doing that it because 
a concerning amount lately that just makes me it's almost like seeing those first few gray hairs when you see that you've left your cell phone light on you know you're becoming a geezer but but um no uh marshall as you look at um you know things like legacy and things like uh uh what work still needs to be done and what you hope to see in your lifetime you know that type of conversation if you could like narrow it down to one major change um, that you hope to see within North American ecosystems in your lifetime, um, it could be one specific ecosystem. You could hit prairie or tropical rainforest or desert or whatever, uh, but or it could just be in general. What would be one major change that would just be like, yeah, that's a that's a landmark that I hope to see in, in my life. Mm. Man, picking one is really hard. Yeah, I imagine so. Um, I mean, I can think of a couple places that I'd like to see really protected in perpetuity. Yeah, let's hear places it. Like, like places like Bristol Bay, mm. places like APR trying to create ecosystem level, you know, conservation for, the Great Plains ecosystem. But honestly, man, I feel like the thing that comes to mind probably more than anything right now and kind of gets at like the foundational belief of why I like hunting so much and why I want to share it with other people and kind of be an evangelist for the pastime is like, I just feel like that connection with nature is hard to, to get at unless you've had those experiences and those intimate, you know, opportunities. And so yeah. I feel like our hunting rights are being infringed upon mm -hmm. uh, and really hunting privileges is a better way to put it yep. are being infringed upon left and right by people who don't understand them. And I mm -hmm. think you'll never get them to understand without having conversations like this or giving them their opportunity to engage and get out there with somebody who's doing it right. And, and quite honestly, well, I'd like thanks. to see those privileges become rights and become protected, protected in perpetuity so that this, this kind of ballot box diplomacy doesn't keep ping-ponging back and forth. And I think, you know, not only are hunting rights being kind of slowly chipped away at, but just habitat, you know, right. habitat level decisions are being taken to the ballot box and not to, you know, biologists, right? Like let's, yeah. let's kind yeah. of remove that from the public opinion cycle and put it in the hands of people who've spent their life dedicated to the, you know, protection and, and conservation of habitat and animals. Yeah, that's a good way. That's a good way to say it. Not all hunters are conservationists, but a lot of the best hunter or a lot of the best conservationists are hunters. And I think it speaks to right uh, here, exa Ken. exactly right here. what, what you're saying, <laughs> but well, thank you so much, Marshall, for uh, giving us some time and sharing the mission there. Everyone tuning in should go and check out Wild Rivers Coffee Company. Um, I just ordered a fresh bag yesterday. I got some of the Colombian roasts, got the elk on there. So I think uh, my my 2% goes to RMEF, right, with that bag? That's and correct. We always so, try to do better than 2%, by the way. That's awesome. Also, yeah. I looked it up in our podcast, if 2% of all uh u.s gdp went to conservation and be about 500 and nicholas cuts out right at the good part there right when right when you were saying the number nicholas yeah 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 500 what, what billion say? dollars wow that'd be a year right. 
We could, yeah, wouldn't that be crazy? We could make use and of that. another stat that'll blow your mind. You know, looking at APR, it's like for the price of one new NFL football stadium, we could save the prairie ecosystem at ecosystem mm. level forever. Yeah, that is way to say crazy. It. Yeah, That's a good way to say it. Well, that and gives look at like values as a society. You think about that, and you're just like, oh man, yeah, dude. Yeah, we yeah we talk about that a lot. Like, what do we value? We we have we see these symptoms of like. And, and I mean, that gets to our tagline, you know, it's so yep. important. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Just as, as Marshall just said it, you know, we have to have that, that total mind change. And, uh, uh do you remember that you can get involved either through, uh, you know, buying a bag of coffee from wild rivers or, uh, reaching out to our presenting sponsor, which is Hoxie native seeds, going to Hoxie native seeds, Dot com looking at some some of your own prairie that you can get down on the landscape maybe you have a big crp uh planting that you got to get done per a contract coming up this spring or maybe you just want some backyard pollinator or something like that go to hoxnafseeds.com and you'll get all of that taken care of right with us you can get on the phone with nicholas he can help you through the details or get on the phone with me and uh, we'll get you set up just as you need but uh as we were just talking about just a second ago Remember, conservation happens one mind at a time. Mm-hmm.